Psalm 88, if you couldn't tell, is widely considered the most depressing, not just psalm, but maybe individual passage in the Old Testament, perhaps in all of scripture, certainly up there with Job and Lamentations. Um, one of the reasons it's unique is that unlike, say, Psalm 13, which we looked at, it never really moves towards the good stuff. Toward, it doesn't praise God. It doesn't say, oh, Lord, I, I know it's going to get better. It just starts and ends in darkness. And the last line is particularly, I think, poignant. The last thing you hear is darkness has become my only friend, um, which is a great image of depression, what it feels like. And, and perhaps, and in, in, I'll say two things and then I'll, I'll get started. Perhaps what, what stands out the most about Psalm 88 and lament psalms in general, is not just that they bring the darkness into God's presence, but that the way they talk about it is that they assume that God has something to do with it. Um, is that this hard stuff is not happening because God isn't in control, not because God didn't know it was going to happen. And therefore, in some sense, God is involved in why is this state of affairs happening? It's, it's the odyssey. It's the problem of evil. There is, I don't think it's in the movie, but there was a famous movie in the early 80s that, that kind of put Meryl Streep on the map, if you've ever seen it, Sophie's Choice, based on a novel by William Styron who himself wrote one of the great depression memoirs of the last 50 years. And Sophie's Choice is a novel about um, people grappling with uh, being Holocaust survivors and the trauma of that. And there's a very famous scene in the novel where the main character who has survived the Holocaust and whose life is unraveled as a result of his trauma is sitting next to an African-American woman the person in American history who has experienced trauma on average more than anyone else. And they're talking to each other and they read Psalm 88 together. And, uh, and it's a great scene in Sophie's Choice where a Jewish Holocaust survivor, an African-American woman open up Psalm 88 and they, and they talk about it and they read it. And so anyway, it, it is not an easy passage, but it is one important for us. Um, in this season, this is the last of just kind of four opening sermons at the beginning of the year to just encourage you to pray the Psalms um, regularly in your life. And this one will be on lament. This is autobiographically for me, the reason more than any other that praying the Psalms has become so important to me. Um, I'm going to talk about this earlier. We all experience sadness and grief and tragedy and loss and heartbreak in our lives. But there's lots of different ways human beings individually and corporately and culturally respond to that. And, and I am a, a fairly typical, I'll talk about this later, guy who just my, my instinct learned and perhaps intrinsic as well, my instinct for most of my life until maybe eight or nine years ago was to basically just shove it down and not deal with it. And, uh, and, and so as that just became untenable as I got older, praying the laments of the Psalms became so central to my own sense of healing, my own sense of growth. And so even though this is a hard topic, I'm really excited to be able to share this. I think any individual, as you follow Jesus, any church corporately, if we don't know how to lament, we're not going to do well at the end of the day. And so, again, I mentioned this before, there are more laments in the Psalms than there are positive celebrations and thanksgivings. Jesus is a man of sorrows. The Apostle Paul, after Pentecost, in the spirits come, after the death and resurrection of Jesus says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That sorrow is unavoidable, not just to the human condition, but specifically to being a Christian. One of my goals, to put it very simply, is just for us as the church to normalize sadness, um, to normalize being sad with each other, to normalize being sad in God's presence. Christopher Wright, a great Christian theologian, I'll quote him again later on, says, we seem to have lost in kind of contemporary Western Christianity, we seem to have lost the willingness, the vocabulary, and even the capacity to engage in authentic biblical lament. Stanley Hauerwas says one of the profoundest forms of faithlessness is the unwillingness. I would add maybe the inability to acknowledge our inexplicable, inexplicable suffering and pain and how it affects us. And so let me pray and then let's hear God's word. Father, thank you for these laments in scripture. And again, whether it is something that is happening right now that is the cause of heartbreak and sorrow and angst and sadness, whether it's something in our long ago past that is still, um, we're still grappling with us, with it, it's still unresolved. We, we know on some level, it's still not a healthy um, reality in our life, or whether it's things corporately and publicly, historically, in the world today, in the past, whatever it is, would you teach us to bring 
our sadness into your presence, our heartbreak, our loss, um, our sense of being overwhelmed with the way the world is not the, not the way it's supposed to be. And, and just this sense that that darkness is our only friend, that, 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 um, that the universe is silent, that God is silent rather than speaking out in praise and in joy. Whatever it might be, I pray that you would teach us how to lament as we look at these Psalms and as we consider this aspect of praying the Psalms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So not at all um, something that I'm sure is a surprise or anything that any of you would deny is if you live long enough, whatever culture you're in, whatever period of history you live in, at some point you're going to grapple sooner rather than later with really overwhelming sadness, with heartbreak, with all of this. But there are lots of different ways human beings respond to it. I'll just mention two that I see a lot in our culture. These are stereotypical. There are others that I'll just mention, and probably a lot of you will resonate with one more than the other. And ultimately, just want to say that both of these are insufficient. The first one is, and, and this is very much how I grew up. This is very much my instinct. I don't know if it would have been if I had grown up in a different culture, but the Irish-American comedian, John Mulaney, has a great line where he says, if you grow up Irish Catholic, which I didn't, but my dad was Irish Catholic, and that very much set the, the atmosphere of the family, is when bad, hard, sad things happen, you just stuff them really deep down, and then someday you die. <laughs> and that's, that's how you live your life. There was a great movie that, that's up for the Academy Award right now, and lots of actors nominated, and it's Banshees of Inisherin, which I loved, um, with this Irish background. And there's a line, if, you, if you've seen the trailer, if you've seen the movie, you know that the, the whole movie, it's just one guy doesn't want to be friends with the other guy anymore. And at one point, Colin Farrell, who's been, so to speak, broken up with by his friend, is like, why doesn't he want to be friends with me anymore? And at one point, another guy in the bar is like, well, well maybe he's depressed. Let, like, look at it sympathetically. Maybe he's depressed. And Colin Farrell has this great response where he says, well, even if he is depressed, he could at least keep it to himself. Like, you know, push it down like the rest of us do. And, uh, and that's, that, that's one way to deal with it, is to just stuff it down. Even at the beginning of the bulletin, there's a couple of lines from Shakespeare on expressing sorrow and grief, and they're good. The second one, Shakespeare says through... The, the play Macbeth gives sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the o'erfraught heart and bids it break. It's a great line. Look at that first one. And, and, but there's something here that, that bothers me a bit. The weight of this sad time, Shakespeare says in King Lear, the weight of this sad time we must obey, must speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. But notice what's implied there, that when something is hard, you ought not to talk about it, which is already a category mistake. Um, that somehow you're transgressing what is appropriate when you speak about what is hard. Some of you I know have this instinct, maybe less than 30 years ago in our culture, the stiff upper lip of, of stereotypical British culture and all of that. Um, Bessel van der Kolk in a book that a lot of you have heard about, some of you have read, The Body Keeps the Score, says this, and this is a good way to name what's fundamentally wrong with this approach. Bessel van der Kolk says this, traumatic events are almost impossible to put into words. While trauma keeps us dumbfounded, the path out of it is always paved with words. Words carefully assembled, piece by piece, until the whole story can be revealed. We may think that we can control our grief, our terror, our shame by remaining silent, the naming it offers the possibility of a different kind of control. Listen to this last line. Communicating fully is the opposite of being traumatized. Communicating fully is the opposite of being traumatized. And the psalmists know that. They know that finally there is no healing until words are spoken. And what I would add, because our culture increasingly gets that, which is good, but also words that are spoken to our creator not just to ourselves or even just to friends and family. So that's one way of dealing with it. Just stuff it down. Feel like somehow you're not supposed to talk about it. Um, and, and that's just um, absolutely setting you up for disaster. And, and that set me up for a lot of difficulty in my adult years is, is it just got untenable and unbearable to do that. Here's the opposite approach in, in many ways. And, and for various reasons, it just jumps out to me, various stories that I've read in the last few months. 
I don't usually do this, but and I, I would not usually make this a habit, but I'm going to give you three random snippets, some of which you're aware of, I'm sure, some maybe not, of how celebrities publicly have responded to sadness and grief in their lives in this last season of Western culture. The first one is Prince Harry um, with his Netflix series and with his book. And just want to say this, I, with all of these stories, I have no idea what the truth is behind the scenes. Uh, of relative hurt and harm and who's to blame and all that. I have no difficulty believing that 98% of what he feels hurt by, he is justified in feeling hurt by. And nonetheless, even if that is true, the way that he has taken this into the public realm and talked about his family rather than to his family and just had this, you know, again, kind of, it's a typical response. You see just this sense of, I just need to be authentic to my own experience and speak it out. And you can just see not only has he um, just made it harder for healthy relationships in the future, whatever that looks like, almost certainly he is not, he is less healthy today than he was a year ago before he started doing this. I regularly see people um, have this sense that I, I should speak it out, I must speak it out, but then have this kind of expressive individualism where there's no sense of purpose and form, but you're just doing it in a way that causes a lot of harm, both to yourself and to others. Another one I saw recently, and I know a lot of you, this is the reason I'm doing it. A lot of you come here primarily for the cutting edge pop culture references I make. And so I'm just trying to feed that fire a little. Is, uh, as I was sharing this with a couple of you, I know this name. I could not even tell you before I read this article, like who this person was or any of their songs. But recently, Shakira apparently wrote a song about her, uh, was it her husband or her living boyfriend, who she has two kids with. And, and again, this one, very clearly, you're sympathetic to her because she is 100% innocent. And this guy is just a terrible human being. He's cheating on her and she discovers it. And, I'm, and the, But then she writes a breakup song about it in which she just kind of humiliates him publicly in a breakup song. And I'm reading an article about it on CNN. And, and of course, this is not the, the topic today. But one of the blind spots of this approach is that, is she right? Is he right? Is he getting mistreated? But the perspective that's not being addressed at all is they have two children, and this is now what every single person in the world will know about their parents for the rest of their lives. And that is not at all part of the agenda of how you talk about this. There's an article where this young kind of feminist woman is kind of just saying, ah, Shakira's doing the right thing. This is a beautiful way to respond to being wronged by a terrible guy. And the article ends with this paragraph, as a woman whose former life partner is now her ex, painful reminder of what happens when you accept less than your worth, which is already a terrible thing to say, what, what, that, that, that guys are unfaithful to you because you are accepting less than what you're worth. Like, it's not her fault at all. But then she goes on to say, Shakira is reminding others of a universal truth. And here is a great synopsis of this approach to dealing with sadness. There is no playbook for the worst moments in your life. There's a very good chance you'll end up being criticized by someone for whatever you do as you heal, so you might as do whatever feels right. And that is a disastrous approach to dealing with pain and sadness. And I would just say, whatever you think ethically, morally, intellectually, I would just say people who go down this path are almost more angry, more broken two years later than before they embarked on the path. I would just say empirically, this is not good for your mental health to go down on this path. And finally, this past Christmas season, um, not a, not a, again, big music guy, but just randomly, I find this through a friend. I find a great Christmas album in my life by Phoebe Bridgers, who's a great musician, and I'm really liking her. And so I look her up, and I read about it, and I don't know what her background is, but, but she's clearly like a young kind of liberal woman, and she seems to come from some kind of a traditional conservative family. And as she releases this Christmas album, here is what she releases with, uh, with uh, the release of one of the songs publicly. She says in writing, happy holidays to everyone whose family has been literally or figuratively torn apart by Donald Trump into my own racist, xenophobic, misogynistic, hypocritical family members, F you. Hmm. And I would just encourage you to not do this. <laughs> I would, even if you are 100% in the right, this is immature. And even beyond that, it will not only bring more brokenness objectively into your relationships, it will set you on a path that is the, in the opposite direction from healing. And, and so if on the one hand, don't stuff it down. And this is one of the reasons we're looking at this. Also. On the other hand, don't trust your instincts and just go wherever they take you with this stuff. 
sadness by itself, if you don't stuff it down, will still take you in directions that will be destructive, that will be harmful. There is a reason we have this old cliche that hurt people hurt people. Simply because you have been hurt and the other pe person is wrong does not justify anything you do in response to that. And so we often see this. I would just suggest that the laments of scripture are in a third, very different category. So let's do a quick survey. Turn to Psalm 6. I just want you to hear, kind of like you did last week with the enemy Psalms, I want you to hear just a, a brief survey so that we know what we're talking about. We read Psalm 13, which is often considered the classic lament psalm. I just want you to hear a couple of other lines. Psalm 6, starting in verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How much longer is this going to last? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, which is just a cemetery, a graveyard where the dead bodies are that aren't, don't have life pulsing through their existence anymore. And Sheol, who will give you praise, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. When was the last time you came into God's presence and used language like that? For most of us, it's, it's not obvious. Psalm 10, just look at the first verse. If you grew up in the church or if you've been around Christians, you have almost certainly heard the positive, uplifting verses memorized and said out loud, like Psalm 46, verse 1. God is a, a very present help and refuge in times of trouble. Right? Isn't that great? And here's Psalm 10, verse 1. Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And so God is not only apparently a refuge and very present help in trouble, he's also the kind of God who often seems like he abandons you when times of trouble come. And both of those are aspects of experiencing God in this fallen world. Psalm 10, verse 1. The most famous one, because Jesus prays it as he dies on the cross, Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. And then later by night, but I find no rest. And Jesus uses these words to describe what he is experiencing in his death and in his crucifixion. Jump ahead to Psalm 31. This is another psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. Again, kind of a little more positive. We, we take it out of context. But if you look back in Psalm 31, in verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You probably remember Jesus says that on the cross. He quotes this, into your hands I commit my spirit, Father. But go down a little farther, verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also wasted away from grief. Because my whole life is spent with sorrow. In my years, not a day, not a week, not a month, my years characterized by sighing. My strength fails me because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Verse 12, I have become forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. Psalm 88 sounds very similar to that. Jump ahead to Psalm 89. We'll just look at a couple more. Then we'll talk about what are these and what are they doing and how do we pray these. At the end of Psalm 89, which you can remember is right after Psalm 88, um, not time for this today, but I've mentioned a few times in this opening short series that there are five books in the Psalter, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, and they're there. Book three is 88 and 89 are the last two Psalms in book three. Book three is the darkest book in the Psalter. It's not the only one with the laments, but it's the one with the harshest laments, with the hardest laments. And if 88 is the individual private experience of a person before God, Psalm 89 is the public experience of God allowing your enemies, allowing the enemies of Israel to come and destroy Jerusalem, take them off into exile, no Davidic king. And Psalm 89 ends in verse 46 with, how long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? 
how long will your wrath burn against us like fire? Would you remember how short my time is? For what vanity you have created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Because we are a young church, this might be a new thought, but I promise you at some point in your life, if you have not yet, you will. One of the really hard things when sadness and trauma and grief and heartbreak dominate for years and years and years, and this was true for me in my probably mid-30s, is you begin to have a growing sense of I'm running out of time. There's not a whole lot of time to turn this around anymore. And, and suffering really raises the prospect of the brief life I've been given is going down the tube. And that's what this guy says. Remember how short my time is, God. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And we got no Davidic king, and we haven't for centuries at this point. Remember, O oh Lord, how your servants are being mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O oh Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then finally, Psalm 130, very, very famous, but just its imagery, its language, I encourage you to memorize and to use. When is it appropriate to pray? When is it appropriate to come into God's presence and to articulate words? Psalm 130, verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the, in the pit. I don't wait until I'm out of the pit and I'm feeling better and ready to sing a happy praise song. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And in Psalm 142, verse 2, it um, says this, I pour out my complaint before God, I tell my trouble before him. And so I just want you to notice that if you're not talking like this when you come into God's presence, um, something it, it, there's, there's some kind of a gap between the faith we've been given and what we are actually doing. Now, the question is what we do with these laments. Jeremiah, and it's not just the Psalms, Job, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, there is an entire book that we often don't read today, except for one or two verses we take out of context when we sing, how great is your faithfulness, the book of Lamentations, which is five chapters after Jeremiah, before Ezekiel. If you've not gotten there recently, it is hardcore, and it is five chapters of lament over the disaster that has befallen the people of God in exile, and the incredible evil that has been inflicted against them by their enemies, the incredible um, injustice and oppression, and just all of the loss that is there. And so as I, what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is just try to describe what exactly is lament, and what are we doing, and what isn't lament. But let me, let me read this. This is by Walter Brueggemann. I will, I will send out a couple of links on this for those of you who want to pursue lament. There is probably no one you should read more on this topic lament than this Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, and, and here's something he says. It is a curious fact that the American church has, by and large, continued to sing songs only of orientation, optimism, in a world increasingly experienced by most people as disoriented. It is my judgment that this action of the church is less an evangelical defiance guided by faith and much more a frightened, numb denial and deception that does not want to acknowledge or experience that life is not the way it's supposed to be. The reason for such relentless affirmation of hope and optimism in the church seems to come not from faith, but from the wishful, shallow optimism of our culture. Such a denial and cover-up, which I take it to be, is an odd inclination for passionate Bible users, given the large number of psalms that are songs of lament and protest and complaint about the incoherence that is experienced in the world. At least it is clear that a church that only goes on singing happy songs in the face of even the hardest experiences of reality is doing something very different from what the Bible does. It's doing something very different from what the Bible does. He goes on and he says, I think that serious use of the lament psalms has been minimal because we have believed, this is so insightful, because we have believed that faith does not mean to acknowledge and embrace negativity. We have thought that acknowledgement of negativity must itself somehow be an act of unfaith, of unbelief. The point to be urged is this, 
the use of these psalms of darkness, like Psalm 13, Psalm 88, may be judged by the world to be acts of unfaith and failure, but for the trusting community, the body of Christ, their use is an act of bold faith, albeit a transformed faith. It is an act of bold faith on the one hand, because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is, and not in some pretended way. We're not pretending, we're not playing games. And there is one of the things I learned very early on when I became a Christian, took me years to articulate, is there's a lot of pretending that happens in the American church. There's a lot of talking that's positive, that is masking something very different than that. Many of you have heard me say this before. It took me years to articulate it. Some of this is certainly my own brokenness. My greatest sense of challenge and dissonance when I became a Christian at 18 years old in college was walking into church services where right away the guitars and the piano were loud and the worship leaders were really happy and singing happy songs to me and like, whoa, there's, I, I don't know what to do with this because this is not how I feel. This is not what I'm thinking. And, and to some extent that was, there is an healthy, a helpful aspect of that, that it challenged me to come out of my sadness, but it also for years gave me the sense that my, my faith just can't have anything to do with a huge part of my experience in the world because we never talk about it. We never do anything with it. And, and this is the way years later I began to articulate it is I would meet usually older, older Christians, 50, 60, 70 years old, enough time for really hard things to happen. But they would have this theology, this spirituality where you only praise, you only give thanks, you only talk about God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And, and, and I began to articulate it as glazed over eyes syndrome, that there was something in their eyes that was different than the words coming out of their mouth. That they were narrating their life as, it's just been amazing how God has been so good to me. And that was not a good overall description of how they had actually experienced the world. And they had never been given these words coming into God's presence. So Brueggemann says, on the one hand, the Psalms of Lament insist the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretended way. On the other hand, against, you know, Prince Harry and Phoebe Bridgers, and against this, it is bold because it also insists that all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for conversation with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate when you come into God's presence. Everything properly belongs in this dialogue with our creator. To withhold parts of life from that conversation is in fact to withhold part of your life from the sovereignty of God. Thus, these psalms make the important connection. Everything we experience must be brought to speech, and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. And I think that's part of the logic underneath the psalms of lament. So in the last few minutes, here's what I want to do really briefly, and, and I can send these around if you want them later, is sometimes, and I think with lament, because it is so foreign to us, and even the, the sense we have of it is often misguided and stereotypical and unbalanced, is sometimes it's helpful to try to talk about something by first talking about what it's not. And so for each thing I say positively about what lament is, I'm going to start by saying this is not what lament is. So here's the first thing lament is not, and I want you to really hear this, even though it's simple. Lament is not giving thanks to God. Lament is not celebrating his goodness. Lament is not confessing your sin. Lament is not repentance. And I just want you to notice that if you've grown up in the church or you're just in this kind of American Christian spirituality, we are, I want you to notice that you will certainly, certainly find that as you begin praying the Psalms of Lament, you'll have an instinct to steer away towards, but thank you, Lord, for being so good to me anyway. Or, and Lord, I just am reminded of what a terrible sin, and you're going to veer away from lament towards another kind of speech. And none of those kinds of speech are lament. Lament is bringing our pain before God. And so here's positively what it is. Lament is bringing our pain before God. It is restless discontent with the status quo. It is complaint. It is dark. It is negative. It is about disappointment and pain. It is not positive. Emily Dickinson, great poet. Um, my, my sense is that her own relationship with the church was very complicated. And here's how she articulated something that drove her nuts about the established church in English in, in England. Pain seems to be missed in praise. We're always praising, 
and we're never talking about pain. And there's something that makes that makes Christianity feel like unreality because of that. Philip Yancey, great Christian writer, wrote a book called Disappointed with God. And he talks about one day he went into, I don't know, like a Barnes and Noble, and he saw on the cover of the book that the, the name of the book is Disappointed with God, but there was a sticker on it that if you were disappointed with the book, you get your money back. Um, it just talks about that, like we are, are not very comfortable talking about disappointment with God in our culture. And so here is such a, for me, I've learned this from others, such a helpful way to think about lament. When you lament, what are you doing? You're not giving thanks. You're not confessing your sin. You're not, you know, saying, Lord, thanks for using this sovereignly for my long-term benefit, even though all of those things are true, but you are not lamenting when you do those things. What are you doing? Great Jewish theologian, sometimes I, I quote him, John Levinson says this, and, and because he's Jewish, he only has the Psalms and he's not reading them through kind of the, the optimism that, that maybe some Christians think the resurrection gets, oh, we don't need the, we don't need to do this anymore because Jesus is raised from the dead. And so he says this, and I think he's right. Lament honestly and courageously draws attention. Here's the image. to The painful and yawning gap between the confession of faith of God's absolute sovereignty over the world in the empirical historical reality of evil that is triumphant and unchecked. The psalmist refuses to deny the evidence of his senses in the name of faith to pretend that there is some higher or inner world in which these horrific events are unknown and unexperienced. But he also refuses to abandon the affirmation of God's world-ordering mastery, his power to defeat even the primeval personification of chaos, which the imagery of chaos is all over lament psalms, and to fashion the world as he sees fit. In short, lament acknowledges the reality of militant, triumphant, and persistent evil, but steadfastly and resolutely refuses to accept this reality as final and absolute, which is why lament is always about discontent with the status quo. It is hard to imagine many Christian theologians saying this, because we're not bold enough, but listen to this last line from Levinson. In lament, we call upon God to close the gap between his reputation and his current behavior. In lament, we call upon God to close the gap between who he is supposed to be and what the world is supposed to be like and what is actually happening. And so Christopher Wright, this great Christian theologian, agrees with Levinson and restates and says, this is the essence of biblical lament. It is faith struggling with vertigo over the chasm between what it knows to be true about God and the reality of what it sees and experiences in the world. And so lament is what you do when you feel that vertigo between what is and what should be, between the claims of your faith and what you're actually experiencing in the world. And it doesn't throw God under the bus, but it also doesn't throw your experience under the bus. And so lament is vertigo over the gap and standing in the middle of it for how uncomfortable that is. So here's the second thing lament is not. I'm going in a completely opposite direction. If lament is not, you know, a way of giving thanks and expressing something positive, it is also not despair or pessimism. Um, John Goldengay, a great Old Testament scholar, actually says we probably shouldn't use the word lament for what these are, because in many cultures, lament is what you do at the funeral of a loved one when you have no expectation that this person is going to get up out of the grave or they're going to recover. Lament is what you do at the end of the process of grief, but that's actually not what these psalms ever are. And so John Goldengay actually suggests that we call them protests rather than laments. That in, when we lament, and it's there in Psalm 13, we are expecting God to do something in response to it. We are not just expressing our experience for its own sake only. We're not doing it at the end of the road. So to speak, lament takes place midway through the story, not at the end. Lament is not despair. It is not pessimism. Lament is, and this is so hard to hold sadness in this together, but laments are filled with expectation. They are filled with the expectation that God is going to do something in response to it. We don't know how long, we don't know how, but holding sadness and expectation together, grief and hope is very counterintuitive to most of us, but that's what these are doing. And so they are not despair, they are not pessimism. 
Here's the third thing. This is not what lament is. They are not a free for all, anything goes, which is kind of, you know, if, if Prince Harry was teaching us how to lament, it would just be this free for all, this anything goes. One of my favorite um, scenes in, in one of my favorite shows, Arrested Development, if you've ever seen that, it's a great show. That is a dysfunctional family, if you've ever seen one. There's a lot of need to lament in this family. And there's a scene where all of the siblings who are completely dysfunctional as adults, and they have two terrible parents in different ways, is they actually begin bonding together over kind of complaining about how terrible their mom and their dad is. And they're like, oh, like, this is so healthy. This is so helpful to be able to talk about it. And then all of a sudden, the youngest one, Buster, just goes too far. And it's, it's a really funny scene because it, it just starts cursing his parents out. And he's just like, he's angry. And he's just, and it's beep, 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 beep. And all the other siblings are like, Whoa, what the heck happened to that guy? And, and, and that's not what lament is. Lament is not a free-for-all, anything goes, where you give the finger to the heavens, where you start saying the F word to God. That, that's not what lament is. Um, Walter Brueggemann has a great phrase where he says, lament is, and, and probably in, in our secular culture, where we see this is in the almost universal um, affirmation that there are stages of grief that you have to go through. Is Walter Brueggemann calls lament, providing a formfulness for our grief, that it's scaffolding, it's training wheels. That is, it's not saying do whatever you feel like, it's saying you need to go this direction, not that direction. You need to say this, even though you probably don't want to. And so lament is not just do whatever you want with your sadness. It is, and this is why I encourage you to pray the lament Psalms, they will take you in directions you would not intuitively go. They will encourage you to talk to God in ways that are not natural to you. They will take you in directions that you need to go objectively, but subjectively we, we wouldn't go in that direction. So they're not a free-for-all. Lament takes us through the theological stages of grief. I would encourage you to go back to Psalm 13 real quick. Psalm 13 is usually used as the teaching tool for lament because it is so typical and simple I want you to notice that there are six verses in Psalm 13, and there are three clear movements. Verses one and two, four times, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord. Verses one and two are lament and protest. Then verses three and four remind us that lament is not despair. It's not pessimism. Verses three and four are, Lord, I want you to do something about it. It's asking God to intervene. It's asking God to heal and to disrupt the brokenness of the status quo. And in verses five and six, and I'll get to this in a second, this might sound like Psalm 13 is doing what, what I said we shouldn't, which is sneaking praise and thanksgiving in the back end. Um, that's not what it's doing. It's just saying that even when we lament, we do so in the context of trust and in the context of a positive relationship, even if at the moment it doesn't feel positive. So here's our fourth one, and I'll, I'll get to it in a second. But one of the things I love doing premarital counseling with, with young couples or marriage counseling after they get married. And very early on, when I meet with a couple for the first time, two of the most important things I want to know is if you guys ever really fought, and if you have not, I'm worried. And then two is how do you fight? And, and, and so here's the way I would put it is in a healthy relationship, in a covenantal relationship, the difference between that and an unhealthy relationship is not the absence of conflict. It's not that you never speak the language of disappointment or of uh, I'm hurt by you or I'm not doing well right now. But nonetheless, I would just say this, how you engage in conflict in a healthy relationship is very different than how you engage in it in an unhealthy relationship or something you don't know. I would just say, think about if you've ever experienced it in your own life, your parents' lives, lives of friends, if you've ever seen a couple or a family actually engage in healthy conflict. Maybe you haven't, but I promise you it does happen. Um, and then think about how people fight on the subway who don't know each other, how people talk to each other on social media who never see each other in the flesh. Conflict is not the difference between these things, but how you engage is very, very, very different. And so here's the fourth thing that lament is not, and it's, it should be for us having just gone through this series in the, in the fall, uh, sorry, in, in the spring and in the summer, is what is central to in these 40 years in the wilderness what Israel does wrong they grumble and they complain and they whine and a really good question to ask yourself is what's the difference between that 
in lament psalms. Because lament psalms are commended, but Israel whining and grumbling and complaining in the wilderness is seen as unhealthy and unfaithful. That's arguing with somebody on the subway and cursing them out, writing something awful on social media that you would never say to somebody's face. And somehow the lament psalms are healthy conflict and a healthy relationship. What's the difference? And I would say this, when, you, when Israel is grumbling and complaining and whining in the wilderness, they are talking at God and God is a means to an end. And, and so to speak, you see this, especially probably in sports today with coaches is Israel has the, what have you done for me lately attitude? Like I, my, my belly was filled yesterday. Why isn't it right now, God? I, I, I liked where we were yesterday. I don't like where we are now. And, and when you grumble, when you complain, you're talking at a person. When you lament, you're talking to them, with them, and you're actually talking about the relationship itself, not the person is a means to an end where you're just griping and venting about something else, and they are just a means to an end. And so lament is not grumbling, not complaining. It's not, in this sense, um, coming at God in this negative way. Instead, it is expressing disappointment with into a person that you're in relationship with. And so if lament is not grumbling and whining, what is it? I would say this, it's covenantal. It happens in the context of a relationship where there's real obligation and commitment. It's not the kind of complaint you throw out at somebody and you're like, and I'm done with you now, or where there's no sense of commitment. It's both sides of this relationship are committed to each other or are not going anywhere. And it's the kind of communication about hurt and about disappointment that happens in a secure, healthy relationship. Nicholas Wolderstorff, if you want to read anything on lament, um, the, the most famous one among Christians today is when C.S. Lewis's wife died, I believe of cancer. He wrote a very good book called A Grief Observed. I think this is a more important book. Nicholas Wolderstorff is one of the two or three most important Christian philosophers in the last 50 years. He taught at Yale for many years. And when he was let's say 10 years older than me, no more than that, maybe less, his adult son, younger than many of you here, had just graduated college and died on a mountain climbing trip in Europe. And it completely changed the second half of Nicholas Wolderstorff's life. Sadness and darkness now hung over every day. And he wrote a short book that's really just his journal from these months called Lament for a Son. And it is so good. And it is so raw. And, and, and one of the things that comes out in this and other things he wrote was, I, I've been a Christian for 50 years and I have not been given language to know what to do at this moment. I do not know how to relate to God in this moment. And so he learns how to lament. And he says this in the preface to the book, this is now a few years later, he's still changed. He's still destroyed and distraught and sad, but enough time for healing has gone by. And he says this in the preface, Rather often, I am now asked whether the grief remains as intense as when I first wrote in the weeks and months after my son died. The answer is no. The wound is no longer raw, that it has not disappeared, and that is as it should be and must be. If my son was worth loving, he is worth grieving over. Grief is existential testimony to the worth of what we love. That worth still abides after his death. And so I own my grief. I do not try to put it behind me to get over it or to forget it. I do not try to disown it. If someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, maybe not immediately, but pretty soon, I am one who has lost a son. I am one who has lost a son. And that loss now shapes my identity, not all of my identity, but a lot of it. And it belongs within my story. And then he says this. I have come back to this line so many times over the years. Lament is part of life. Because if you understand it, you know that every lament is actually a love song. Every lament is actually a love song. And then he asked the question, will love songs one day no longer be laments? Whether they will or not. And we do believe they won't one day on the other side of the resurrection. For now, love songs include laments. And so I would say this, in any relationship with anyone you love, if there is no avenue for expressing disappointment, it is actually a failure to love as well as you should. For them to have the openness to be able to express disappointment with you, for you to be able to express in the context of covenant relationship, disappointment, sadness, this is the mark of a healthy relationship. Last one. Here's what lament is not. It is not 
accusation against God. It is not, so to speak, a final verdict that I gave you a chance, but you turned out to be unfaithful, God. That's not what lament is. Jeremiah, you don't need to turn here. I'll just read it. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Jeremiah is the great lamenting prophet. If you want to get into this more, Jeremiah is a good prophet to read. And he says this in chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, even when I complain to you, and yet I am still going to plead my case before you. God is righteous. There is no claim here that God has been unfaithful, that I am more righteous and my perspective is more true than God's. Um, it is not an accusation. Maybe you noticed it. The most obvious dynamic about lament psalms, it was in every single one I shared with you, is laments, unlike praise, unlike confession, unlike thanksgiving, unlike intercession, laments are dominated by questions. How long, O oh Lord? Why are you hiding your face? Where is your steadfast love that used to be there last year? And I would just say this is, do not see this as decorative um, kind of ornamentation on the surface with just implied rhetorical answers. You ask a question in a healthy relationship because you are giving the other person room to answer. And when you lament, you are not speaking the final word, you are giving God the next word. How long, O oh Lord? Now wait to see what his answer is. Why are you hiding your face? Wait to see what his answer is. And when it comes back, when we lament, we are engaged in an open-ended conversational moment that is an interim pause along the way. It is not the final moment where you look up to the heavens and say, I'm done with you. You have been unfaithful. That is not lament. Um, and so in Psalm 30, we remember that sorrow lasts for the night. The joy comes with the morning. Lament are the, is the questions we ask God, difficult questions about how it feels along the way as we wait. And so two um, practical things that I want to encourage you to think about, and then we'll go to the, the Lord's table. Um, the first one is that every single one of you, every single week of your life has something to lament. There's a reason that you can't pray two or three psalms in a row without running into this, but just say, make it a regular practice. Not once every four years, not once when you're 37, when you're finally on the therapist's couch, not two times a year, make it some kind of a regular practice to be taking the sadness, the hard things that have happened, and to be bringing them into God's presence and talking about them. I've quoted this before. The great Old Testament scholar talking about lament says, here's the simple formula, impression without expression leads to depression. And so impression, expression, and you don't need to go through the things that happen when we express or conceal grief in unhealthy ways. And so I would just say, learn to name the things in your past, in your present. And also remember, again, it hasn't been a main focus today, but as many psalms of lament that are focused on the individual are also focused on the corporate and the public and the historical, learn to respond to the stuff that happens in the news around the world this way. Learn to not hold it at a distance, not just with your own experience, but your relation to God, but lament over Tyre Nichols. Lament over these Asian American shootings around Lunar New Year. Lament over every week when we pray for the suffering church around the world. Enter into lament before God about these things. There is always reason to be lamenting. Not only, not mainly, um, at least not in every season. G.K. Chesterton says, and, and for all of my focus on this and for all of the ways I found this life giving, it's actually ultimately, I would say, the deepest reason you should lament is because you know, G.K. Chesterton says, that if, if God exists, if, if the God who raised Jesus from the dead is there, then we are only most ourselves when joy and not grief is the major note in our lives. But you cannot get there unless you learn to lament. Lament will open up pathways to joy, pathways to peace, pathways to flourishing, but you cannot, just to think about the tragic stuff in life, it's a storm, cannot turn away from it and pretend it's not there, cannot run away from it, you cannot go around it, and you have to go through it. And every single one of you, including me, has some inbuilt resistance to being with God in the middle of the storm and just talking about how hard it is. And so here's the last thing I want to say to both, hopefully, this, I think this is going to surprise you, is to give kind of an eye-opening moment about who God is and, and for you to have even more motivation to do this. When you lament, 
you are, we are not as human beings, the ones who initiate lament as a conversation. Once you notice the language of lament in the Old Testament, to me, the most surprising thing, but the most beautiful thing is that God is constantly lamenting in the Bible. This is not something that human beings do alone. Let me just read you a couple real quick. Here is Micah chapter six. It gets to the famous section of, you know, what does God require of you? It's up to walk humbly with him and the love of justice and all that. But here's how Micah actually starts. Micah chapter six. This is God speaking. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what your enemies, Balak and Balaam, did. And then it just leads to, and yet you are faithless to me. You are disobeying me. Oh, my people, what have I done to weary you? Right after Psalm 80, which I read to start the service, which is a lament towards God, for God not seeming to show up, Psalm 81 is a lament of God towards Israel. And I'll just read two of the verses here. Verse 8, hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. And then, that's verse 8, here's verse 13, oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him. Their fate would last forever, that he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. In the wilderness, Israel grumbles and grumbles and grumbles and God is faithful and he's faithful and he's faithful. And in Numbers 14, when finally God has had enough after all of these years and all of these moments of faithlessness by Israel towards him. God says in verse 11 of Numbers 14, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? You hear the language of lament there? And so let me encourage you, and, and of course for us as Christians, and we'll come to this in a second, is days before his crucifixion, Jesus walks into Jerusalem and the first thing he says as he walks in, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills all the prophets God sends to it. How I have longed to gather you like a hen gathers his brood and to protect you, but you were not willing. And he weeps over Jerusalem in lament. And so let me encourage you that in any healthy relationship, there's reciprocity, mutuality, God, and, and then both to, for you to have a sense of the heart of God and also to enter into this relationship. Here is something that I encourage you to think about as we take the Lord's Supper. God has lamented over every single one of us so many times. And he will lament over us so often in the years to come, not because he doesn't love us, not because he's giving up on us, not because he's accusing us and saying, I'm done with you, you're unfaithful, but because this is what love looks like in a fallen world. And so when we lament, we are entering into a type of conversation that God is already having with us and with his world. And so don't run away from lament. It is the language of love. It is the language of hope. It is the language of health in the midst of a lot of brokenness. And so let's